Hello, folks. Welcome to the Whoop Podcast. I'm your host, Will Amit, the founder and CEO of Whoop, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. We build technology across hardware and software and analytics designed to better understand you. Uh, for those of you listening to the Whoop Podcast for the first time, a reminder that you can get 15% off a Whoop membership by using code Will Ahmed. W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, and that'll give you 15% off your WHOOP membership. We have an amazing guest this week, Dr. Andrew Huberman. He is the head of Stanford's Huberman Lab. That's right. He's got a laboratory named after him, which researches the function of the human brain, how it can change through experience, how it can repair after damage, and what are the different chemicals that are firing that drive and motivate all of us in our daily lives. And we talk a lot about how this moment in time that we're all experiencing, this this global pandemic, is affecting our brains. Uh, We talk about how different people have different inclinations uh, to this moment in time. He does a phenomenal job describing just what is the brain, this incredibly unique, special organ in all of our bodies. Uh, He talks about different ways that we can map experiences to the brain, that we can map meaning to to those experiences, how dopamine keeps us all moving and running and motivated, and different ways to think about that dopamine cycle. You know, ultimately, the reward system that you get once you accomplish something that you've been striving to or, or something that you've been anticipating. How do you keep that reward system in check? Uh, it's really, really fascinating. Uh, he goes really deep on just the the neurobiology of all of our all of our lives and our existence and and this world around us. So, this is a fascinating interview. Uh, it's pretty intense. I think there's some really good takeaways uh, for how we can all better handle the global pandemic that we're in. And again, I'm wishing all of you, our listeners, the utmost safety and uh, and great health during this crazy time. So without further ado, here is Dr. Huberman. Andrew, welcome to the Whoop Podcast. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. You've had a fascinating career, which seems incredibly relevant in this crazy moment that we're going through. So I'm excited to tie those two things together. Why don't we start just by you introducing yourself? Like, How how did you get so fascinated by the brain? Currently, I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine, 44 years old. And I got really interested in the brain when I was quite young. So uh, my dad's a scientist. He's a theoretical physicist, so very different field. But um, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of discussions about science. No one talked about sports, maybe tennis every once in a while, but it was all all about sports uh, for most kids. And it was all about science in my home. So uh, we had graduate students over and postdocs and other professors. And so I kind of grew up around scientific discussion. I always liked animals. I always liked the natural world. um, And I always liked observing things and looking for patterns and regularities. And I think I was six when I told my dad I wanted to um, the scientist. And um, I asked him what, what scientist to become. And he said, well, we don't know that much about the brain. And so I said, well, I'll figure out how the brain works, which is a kind of a bold statement for anyone to make. Uh, I don't think anyone, one individual can do that. But, um, and then I, uh, from about age, I would say 13 to 19, uh, I got quite uh, distant from my studies. Uh, you know, I grew up in Palo Alto. I went to a very competitive high school but um, just because of the the arrangement of my life at that time, my, my main interests were um, skateboarding and skateboarding. 
and uh, not so much anything else. Skater boy, let's go. Yeah, I, I grew up, um, I still have a lot of friends in that, from that community, uh, great friends from that community, in fact, and, and was lucky enough to be a part of a, the early 90s skateboard culture at a time when a lot of companies and kids in San Francisco were getting quite, uh, quite good and uh, getting a lot of notoriety. But um, I wasn't built for that. I, uh, I found I, I, I was okay, but I wasn't, I wasn't really skilled at it. And basically, I followed a high school girlfriend off to uh, university, and I uh, took a course in um, what then was called biopsychology. There wasn't even a field of neuroscience then. And uh, I learned about neurochemicals and um, feeding behavior and thermo- thermoregulatory behavior, which is like it sounds, the, you know, how we regulate body temperature. And at the time, I was, um, I'd gotten really into martial arts and weightlifting and running. And I was really interested in fitness. And so I thought neuroscience and uh, or biopsychology, as it was called, was really cool because it had to do not just with the brain, but these brain body relationships. And so I decided at that point, I, I wrote it down. I, I said, I'm going to become a, a professor and I'm going to have a lab. And I started working in a lab and I set out these goals of, you know, getting a PhD and becoming a professor. And here I am. I haven't really done anything else professionally for the last 20 plus years. I want to start with just like, like really, really high level, right? Like, I watched some of your presentations and I've followed your work. Describe for us, like literally, what is the brain and like, why does it, why does it function? Like what's its purpose? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have organs all over our body, stomach, heart, spleen, et cetera. The brain is by far, by far the most important of all the organs we have because it's the master organizer of all the other organs. So the brain is basically a collection of cells, neurons, as well as some other cell types like blood cells and uh, glia, which uh, have important roles as well, that are, uh, you have trillions of these cells and they're floating around in a bag of liquid inside your skull. And they communicate through electricity and they communicate through chemical signals. And what they can do is remarkable because of the, this property that we call neural circuits. So rather than having specific areas of the brain, meaning collections of these neurons or cells that do one thing, like you might have heard before, the hippocampus is for memory. Well, that's true. It's involved, but it's not the only structure in the brain involved in memory. It's part of a larger circuit. The same way that keys on a piano can be played in different time order, sequ- you know, different sequence, different keys, and you get different songs. You get play different areas of the brain, meaning they're electrically and chemically active at different periods of time, and you get different phenomena. And the phenomena that the brain creates, they're really five things. So you have sensations, which is your ability to detect physical events in the world. This is very important, and it's not often discussed that the, the human brain has, we've got receptors in our eye, in our ears, in our nose, on our tongue, et cetera. And they simply take of physical events in the outside world that are fixed and rigid, photons of light, sound waves, chemicals in the environment that are floating, volatile chemicals, meaning they're floating around. And they convert those real physical entities into chemical and electrical signals that are passed into the nervous system. And then we abstract what they mean. We create an abstract perception. So the way to think about this is we have sensations, which are all the things that are impinging on you all the time, sight and sound and taste and smell and all these things. 
But then we have perceptions, which are the sensations that we are able to recognize and we call it transduce into signals that the brain can understand and we create these abstract representations of them. And then we have feelings, also called emotions, which are really the way that the brain inside the skull and the body are communicating with one another through chemical electrical signaling to create states, states of agitation to make us move, states of calm to make us quiescent and still, states of focus, states of unfocus, et cetera. So we've got sensations, perceptions, feelings, and then we have thoughts, which are a little abstract. And thoughts are just the way that we organize all the other stuff. Right. And get into that in detail if you want. And then we have actions, which are behaviors. So the brain is this organ that's responsible for taking our, the physical events in the world around us, plus our recognition of the physical events within us, how full our gut feels, how tired we feel, how alert we feel, and combine those into some sorts of action steps that you know, allow us to continue to show up each day and, and thrive. And if you think about it, humans are the curators of the earth. We're the species in charge. We're not the strongest. We're not the, we can't jump as high or run as fast as the other species. The human brain has this capacity of these five things. But in addition to that, it has two marvelous properties, which are the ability to plan and to implement plans. That would be one. And the other is this property we call neuroplasticity. The machine that is the brain and nervous system is an adaptive machine. It's not like a car. It's like a car that changes if you drive on a gravel road to get better at driving on gravel right, roads. Right, right, right. It right, turns right. into a Jeep when, you, when you're on a gravel road and it turns into a race car when you're on a Formula One track. And that property of neuroplasticity is without question the reason why we are the curators of the planet and the species in charge and not some other species. Because we've been able to make plans and modify our behavior and our thoughts and our perceptions and our feelings and our actions so that we continually build out technologies that allow us to adapt faster and faster and faster. So that's my um, long-winded answer to your question. Uh, I could get down in the weeds of the biology, but hopefully that was satisfactory. One really interesting phenomenon that you've talked about uh, in the past is this concept of how humans derive meaning, right? How the brain derives meaning from an experience. And there's this concept of at, at times our brain is thinking, we're doing, we're learning, right? That's one phenomenon that's going on. And then we also just have this sort of basic primal drive. And the connection between you thinking and you doing things, right? Or your drive is this concept of of mapping experiences, right? It's this concept of of doing of of deriving meaning. And again, I'm I'm getting all of this from from you and just trying to get caught up to speed on on understanding the brain. Talk a little bit about this phenomenon that I'm trying to describe, which especially at this moment in time feels like a really important thing to understand that how it's going on. It's a fundamentally important question. Uh, I'm going to do my best to answer it, and and I'll try and do that in a series of of, of three layers. As you can tell, I like lists. I guess it just comes from writing too many grants where we're required to out. Um, so, and did I describe is, is, did I describe that relationship properly? Make sure absolutely. I, I didn't screw that. Yeah, up. you 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 bullseyed it exactly. So you know we're not a nervous we're not a, a nervous system that just 
um, focuses on what's in our immediate environment and goes after it. You know, uh, we have elements of our wiring that are designed to do that. And the system that I think becomes very relevant in this discussion is the dopamine system, which, um, so maybe we'll talk about that first and then build out from there in terms of um, arriving at what meaning is really about and why it's such a powerful driver uh, and force for us and how to leverage it. So dopamine is this chemical, it's a molecule that's released in the brain and it's a neuromodulator, um, meaning it changes the activity of certain circuits in the brain and not others. And you know, dopamine is rather famous for its role in reward. You, know, you get a degree, you get a, you know, do a big raise for your company, you get uh, finally allowed to leave your house after quarantine, you know, the, the flatten the curve, whatever. There's, sure. It's associated with big win type events. But what's not really appreciated uh, or discussed that often is that dopamine is actually has a much more powerful role en route to our goals. So mother nature installed this feel good chemical called dopamine that is secreted anytime we're focused on something outside the reach of our hands and our own skin, literally. If it's about focusing on things outside our immediate sphere of experience, it's very it's involved in goal-directed behavior. So working towards a degree, working towards a raise, building something, um, all of that. And it makes sense why Mother Nature would design a, a chemical like this, because otherwise, why would we ever go forage for the food that would give us the reward or forage for the mate that would give us the uh, reproductive event? You know, why would we ever do that, right? Yeah, it so keeps we get us to, motivated, right? keeps us motivated. It is, think of it like a, like a rocket thruster. Okay. Yeah. And so it's involved in getting you there, not just when you're in the goal, when you arrive, reaching the goal when you arrive. And it's a beautiful mechanism because it keeps us focused on the external goal and in route to that and feeling good while we're in route to that. You know, if you're searching for water or food, you need to, when you're on the right path and you sense you're on the right path, you need a reward to keep you going, to keep you motivated. So the dopamine system is what all animals have, all mammals for seeking food, seeking water, seeking mates, all that stuff. It's also secreted in forms of play during childhood and et cetera, but it is a super powerful molecule in that sense. Now there's a second molecule in neuromodulator, which is epinephrine, which is a lot like adrenaline, chemically speaking. And that's associated with the effort process. So the, the effort of running, the effort of running your business, the effort of getting groceries when you don't feel like you want to, or you want to, that's, it's, it's, and the interesting thing is there's a circuit in the brain, and this was published in Cell last year, so it verified what people had hypothesized for a long time. There's a circuit in the brain, in the brainstem in particular, that is counting off and measuring how much epinephrine is there. And when you exert for long enough and there's no dopamine, it triggers a quitting reflex. It literally triggers the sensation, I've had enough, I can't keep going. I'm, I'm done. And sometimes it's just a psychological I'm done. If you ever think about it, I mean, you could walk, you could just keep walking and walking, but at some point you're just like, I'm done. The rewards, the dopamine, they have this incredible property at the neurochemical level, at the neural circuit level of suppressing the amount of noradrenaline or norepinephrine as it's also called. And so it, you've experienced this before. Let's say you're just working with your team and it's just a nightmare. It's just things are not happening. And then someone cracks a joke and all of a sudden, in a moment, it couldn't have been hormonal because hormones work over the time scale of hours to days to weeks, you know, it had to have been neurochemical. And that neurochemical is dopamine. All of a sudden, you feel like you've got more wind in you. You've got a second wind. How? How could so, that possibly be? So interesting. Be? Yeah. 
Okay. So what's interesting, and I'll, and again, I, I, uh, I've never been through the experience myself. So who am I to say, but I have a lot of friends from the steel team community and worked in that community as I know you do as well. What's interesting is I think the, the other unconscious genius of that screening procedure is they don't say, okay, guys, like you get donuts and, and warm coffee this morning. Uh-uh. They expect people to find those rewards internally. Totally. The people who get through can find those rewards internally. And this is also true of people that navigate um, life-threatening illnesses and are moving through chemotherapy. It, you know, the, the win can't just be not dying, right? The win, we have this conscious capacity as humans to self-dose these dopamine rewards in very subjective ways. And I think that's where meaning comes in. So I think of the, you know, the, the famous examples, the almost cliche examples of like Viktor Frankl or Nelson Mandela, you know, horrible circumstances, super challenging, but they found internal mechanisms to allow them to push through and not just to survive it, but to really emerge in the sense of real thriving in, in the face of adversity. And founders of companies or um, people that push through adversity, hard degree programs, et cetera, they find this, they learn how to self-dose these dopamine rewards and, and the most powerful ones, and there are good psychology studies to support this, are going to be ones where people attach themselves to an external thing, but they internalize it as very important. Meaning, um, you know, like a sports team that's playing for their dying or dead teammate, right? They, they attach meaning to their effort. Right, right. And, and so what is the meaning? The meaning, if, if, if I were to, I don't think I'm just speculating because there are good data to support this. The meaning allows them to dose the dopamine reward and to push back on that adrenaline and noradrenaline response that would otherwise lead them to the quit response earlier. Right now we're in this COVID-19 pandemic and we should all be congratulating ourselves every morning. Like we're still alive. We're breathing. We're going, we're winning. Totally. And not winning. just... We're winning and not just because we want to feel good. That's a byproduct of that kind of thinking to reward oneself, but because it pushes back on this circuitry that's hardwired in us that's, that forces us to quit at the level of our immune system. It forces our system to crash at the level of, of willingness and effort. Um, so I see meaning as it's not a hack because a hack to me is something that is hijacking an existing thing for a different purpose. These are things that have been installed in us that were probably were designed in order to make sure that as, a, as groups, we, we kept pushing on when members of our teams were flagging, when we were flagging, we could attach ourselves to a greater goal. It can't just be about finding water, finding a mate, making money, getting the degree. Otherwise, we eventually deplete ourselves. And there's so many stories of, of you know, students and company founders and so forth getting in the finish line and having this kind of postpartum depression where they feel just so depleted because it was all output. It was all noradrenaline without the dopamine reward. Um, so what is that, what is that phenomenon right there? That moment where you've built up in your mind that when you get to this point in time, it's all going to happen. You're going to have this unbelievable level of satisfaction. And then right. you recognize, wait a second, I just got to keep going. Yeah. Like, um, and, and by the way, you can tell that this varies dramatically for people, right? Like, it, like you could, and my hunch is that actually some of the most successful and uh, motivated people actually constantly find themselves at that point where they, they've, they've just done something unbelievable and yet they find themselves completely unsatisfied with it and they're immediately onto the next thing. 
So this is uh, nature's diabolical trick to make sure. Remember, nature doesn't, mother nature and evolution don't care about us. They only care about the next generation. So there's probably a reason for this, but but this <laughs> feeling that, of getting to the place of a, of a high vista and feeling kind of depleted or feeling exhausted or not or underwhelmed or that it's so transient has a very specific underlying uh, mechanism that a neuroscientist called reward prediction error. So reward prediction error is based on the fact that dopamine release happens en route to goals and is uh, released in uh, dopamine is released in times of anticipation, not just when we reach reward, but the person you're going to meet that you're really excited to meet, you know, uh, the restaurant that you're going to eat at, the vacation, you secrete dopamine en route to these goals. And the amount of dopamine that you get prior to reaching the final goal has to be less than the amount of dopamine that you get when you reach the goal or right. else you get this, what's called the, so the, the sign of the so-called dopamine reward prediction error predicts whether or not you'll repeat the behavior again. And it, and so it's a beautiful mechanism where if I tell you, hey, look, you, you know, come out here, we're going to go out to a restaurant up in Napa. This place is amazing. And, um, and I keep going on and on about how incredible it is and you know, the carpaccio and the this and the that. Sure. And then we yeah. get there, there's a much higher probability that that meal is going to be underwhelming to you. Then if I say, hey, come out here, there's a great restaurant. I think you're going to love it. And then we go there. I think there's a, and, and these studies have been done again and again, and it all has to do with dopamine reward prediction error. That you need the second, the, the dopamine that arrives at the finish line to be greater than the dopamine you had in route to that. That's why I think some of the most hard driving people will get to the end and they're like, oh, well, that was kind of underwhelming. I guess I got to do it all over again. Although, wait a second, there's got to be a paradox there too, right? Because- if you don't have that high level of dopamine in the process of getting you to the thing, it may actually undermine your ability to get there. 100%. So you're, you're very trenchant. So the <laughs> key then is to keep, is to under, I think the real key is to understand that A, these, these neurochemical pathways and neural circuits exist. You have a quitting circuit. You have a replenishment circuit. We're calling those norepinephrine and dopamine. You have the ability to control the replenishment circuit through just subjective attachment of your efforts to meaning. I'm doing this for someone else or for, for a greater purpose or the greater good or what I want to do with the money when I get there or whatever, what have you. But you don't ever want the pursuit to be in such excess of the eventual goal that you feel underwhelmed when you get there. Or you do, and then you arrive there and you simply pivot to a new goal, which you see a lot of people do over and over again. So they are chronically in the growth mindset. Um, growth mindset is their dopamine release as opposed to the goal. The key is to, to register the satisfaction from both. And there's a third element that I'll just mention that's, I think, very important, which is uh, Mother Nature installed other reward mechanisms in us that are very important. These are getting a lot more attention these days. There are a set of chemicals like serotonin and oxytocin that are involved in generating a sense of well-being and reward for things not beyond our reach and that lie in the future or outside of us, but that are within our immediate sphere of existence. And so these are, were designed to be released when we hold next of kin, when we see close friends, sometimes even when we look at objects that we have, a, have hold meaning for us. They tend to be kind of heartwarming because they trigger activation of some of the neural circuits that link the gut and brain, and they create a kind of sense of warmth in the torso. And so there's that feeling of like well-being and like, oh, I just love, you know, 
you are this so much. It's, you know, it's how I feel about my bulldog downstairs, right? I've had him 10 years. I look at him, I just feel good. I look at him, I just think like, I just think he's like a badass bulldog, but I feel different. It's not like it makes me want to go do anything. It's, it, these neurochemicals generate a sense of quiescence and a kind of sense of peace and calm. And it's very important for anyone that's listening that has goals, um, that is ambitious or hard driving, that you cultivate both reward mechanisms because they were designed to work together of working towards things and then gaining deep appreciation and gratitude and satisfaction for what you have, as well as the desire to go get more things. And, you know, out here in Silicon Valley, I encounter a lot of people that work, 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 work. They reach the finish line. And then all I hear about is how they're doing, you know, um, endless numbers of retreats and psychedelics to try and repair their sense of well-being because despite having everything, <laughs> they don't feel well. And I'm not, right, dis, you know, right, I'm not disparaging yeah. of them, but I've heard that story so many times. And I think, well, yeah, you were just running dopamine and norepinephrine for like 20 years. You've got all the goals that come with that. And you've got these other neural circuits that are just atrophied. You're like the guy that skips leg day every day, except for your brain, for your neurochemical mechanisms. So yeah, of course you yo, know, you won't wear shorts, so to speak. I'm just kind of being playful about the skipping leg day thing. But I think you probably know people like this too, but the people who are really balanced know how to cultivate both these rewards. I feel like the gratitude is a good framework to describe the second, the second important phenomenon that you just described is around serotonin and this sort of feeling of well-being. What are, what are sort of general practices that you would recommend to someone who, who needs to build that second piece up? They, they, they're already on the dopamine train of I've got these goals and I'm building towards them and I, I'm thinking about the dopamine reward I'm going to get and I'm getting a little bit of dopamine for getting closer or I'm thinking about the dopamine I will get, which gives me dopamine. You know, like, okay, they've got that figured out. How do they instill more of that uh, other piece that you were describing within the brain? Yeah, I think gr- gratitude practices are immensely powerful. And it was really a- um, Yeah, so good. A light- yeah, it, it really is. You know, I misunderstood gratitude. I thought for years I would kind of roll my eyes. I was like, oh, gratitude, you know, this is all about being happy with what you got. It makes you really um, complacent. So gratitude should not be com- confused with complacency. When you look at high performance- That's such when a I say powerful point, by the way, that you just made. Because I think yeah, that's I a think- very common misperception. And I had the same misperception. It It's sort of the the idea that, you know, um, that gratitude is like navel gazing. Um, you know, it was really one of the lights, light bulb moments for me is when I realized that these people from these high performance communities that for me, a high performer is somebody that can obviously perform well, but can do that consistently over decades, right? Not the kind of person who just, you know, wins and then flames out or wins and then has some mess in their personal life and comes back. We love those stories in the U S um, cause we love stories of success, failure, and then redemption. And they're a lot of fun, but I'm, when I talk about high performers, I'm talking about people that had 20, 30 year careers in the SEAL teams and came out being nice people with functional families. Like that's impressive to me. I'm talking about people who have yeah, Nobel prizes, who've yeah. done humanitarian work for decades and, um, their kids still like them, you know? So I'm t- so gratitude is fundamentally different than complacency because of the neurochemical signature of gratitude. There are a couple studies now of neuroimaging studies and what we call PET studies, positron emission tomography studies that support the idea that a period of stillness each day, anywhere from five to 10 minutes of just physical stillness combined with some gratitude creates a neurochemical signature in us that involves dopamine release as well as serotonin and oxytocin release. 
it's kind of like what MDMA or ecstasy is designed to do, but obviously without ingesting anything. Right. And that combination is very powerful because it is at once this feel good, feel capable, feel like you can, um, you know, kick ass and take names kind of sensation. It gives you this feeling of possibility and yet you're happy with yourself. And so I think people confused gratitude thinking, oh, gratitude is just going to make me want less. And when you dig in with people who seem really hard driving, but have kept that up for many, many decades, what you find is they all have gratitude practices. Totally. They have immense, they, and, and it was for me, I thought, wow, I wish I'd known that when I was 15 because I was the kid, you know, just, I would just throw myself at things so hard and, or school, throw myself at it so hard. And I, and I loved it, but I would, there were times when I was sick, I was depleted, relationships suffered, et cetera. And when you start cultivating those practices of stillness, just physical stillness and gratitude, you come out of that short period of time of five to 10 minutes with it neurochemically restored. And it's really, it's not a, an insignificant thing at all. There's an enormous benefit to it, and I recommend it to anyone listening to this. Again, also a bit of a paradox in that the people who probably need gr gratitude the most are the least likely to recognize that they need it or to seek it out. So what's going on with people's brains right this moment? We're in a global pandemic. We're watching the television. Fox and CNN are having their greatest ratings of all time. What's going on with our brains? Some people are feeling overwhelmed and exhausted, and that's because we're doing a lot more what's called serial processing every day. You know, it used to be you get up, you brush your teeth, check your phone, you tackle your day. Now you got to think about whether or not you can touch a door handle, how you're going to get groceries. There's a lot more planning. And so we're allocating a lot more of these, what are called prefrontal cortex or top-down processing for your aficionados out there. The, all the thinking hard, we're thinking a lot harder about stuff that we just didn't even have to think about before. So we're all working a lot harder and people vary tremendously in their capacity for these kinds of um, mental operations. Some people are just trained up in them and some people aren't. And, and it's not a, um, you know, it's, it's not a judgmental thing. It's just that some people's lives are just oriented towards more planning and thinking and other people are more doing and more calm. And it's just, there's variation out there, but I think everyone is feeling a little more exhausted, a little more depleted because we're just devoting energy to stuff that we didn't have to devote before. And the brain consumes immense amount of energy, calories, right? Uh, far more than running every day. So now we're running mental marathons every day on the little stuff and we're a little irritated by that too. So that's what's happening at kind of a, like a neuropsychological level. What's really happening at a neural level is we are in deep, deep, deep modes of uncertainty. You know, the brain wants to figure out three things. Duration, how long something's going to last, path, how to get there, outcome. Like what's going on? Duration, path, and outcome, right? I mean, the brain is really, really good at that. And the yeah. other stuff like feelings and, and meaning and memories and stuff, that's all important too. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, every organism is trying to figure out, a honeybee is trying to figure out duration, path, and outcome and make good judgments about that. And the, the short answer is because you mentioned CNN, you mentioned the Times, you know, you, you got Fox News, you got Al Jazeera, all these different, uh, the BBC, none of them know for sure. And so the, the real headline should be, none of us know the duration part, right? Right. I, and now, unlike three weeks ago, I think we're starting to get a hint of the outcome. We're starting to get the sense that everybody isn't going to die. 
but a subset of people are dying. It's far, you know, far more than any of us wanted, but probably lower than certain estimates. Another this, and so if you thought everyone was going to die, and now you're hearing that fewer people are going to die, well, according to all that reward prediction error, you just got you're feeling a little better about the situation. You're feeling a little more levity. If you're in a constant state of anxiety and you're still panicked, it doesn't matter what anybody says because you can know that the numbers are lower, but you can still be freaked out. So really the, the nervous system is, is going, I wouldn't even say double time. It's working a hundred X or a thousand X for most people trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And what can I do in order to control my own behavior and navigate through this? And this is where I think everybody could really benefit from tightening in their sphere of attention for most of the day, right? I think it's good to keep a rest of the news, obviously, but if anyone else really knew, Fauci or Trump or anyone, we'd, ha- we'd have the answer. I think what we can all do is start to cultivate practices that really bring us to the best place of being able to filter this information and basically give us what is what I call true resilience, which is the ability to have output, but also restore your ability to have output. So that's going to look like really quality sleep. It's going to be five minutes a day minimum of some sort of stillness, even if it's breathing or meditation or gratitude or ideally all three for five minutes, not just because we're saying it's a good thing to do, but because it's neurochemically restorative, because it's going to enhance your immunity. There's so much evidence for that. It's like, it's the kind of overwhelming, overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence that, and, and I should just say that the nervous system organizes the immune system. There's there's signals from the nervous system that say, hey, there's a threat and signals the immune system. In the short term, it actually triggers a little, if you feel a little stressed from time to time, that's okay because it triggers this um, enhanced immunity um, briefly. Uh, You've experienced this before. When you were studying in school, you could go, 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 and then you'd stop and then you'd get sick after finals. Yeah, of course. That's because the stress response can push that immune response longer and longer. So we need to learn how to toggle these things. We need to learn how to push hard, then back off. If you're stressed, okay, then also have a period and, and by the way, shout out to, to the WHOOP members listening to this. This is also why you see your heart rate variability plummet when you get sick, because your heart rate variability is a measurement of your autonomic nervous system, which as Andrew just described, gets hugely affected by, by illness. Yeah, I should mention, and, and I'm not, uh, I should say I have no paid affiliation with Whoop or anything like that, but I had a Whoop and I was using it and I really do genuinely use it and I love it. I'm not being told to say that. Um, I just want to say you. that. Yeah. And I gave it to a kid that I mentor who's a young athlete and student um, here because uh, his mom actually tested COVID-19 positive. So oh, I wow. got it over to him safely and he wanted to monitor his sleep. So far, he's good. Um, and yeah, he's been monitoring definitely. his sleep and heart rate variability. I talked to him right before this and- um, yeah, I think that you nailed it. I mean, that heart rate variability is going to be greater in times of, of thriving and, and lower in times when you're when you're immune suppressed. Um, and it really speaks to the the key ways in which these things are linked to one another. So periods of gratitude, periods of sleep, um, obviously physical activity. And I think just really understanding that navigating a period of uncertainty is itself a growth experience. We, you know, we're either in growth mode or glide mode, right? Right now we're in growth mode. This is the longest period of growth and strain that most people have ever experienced. For some people, it's going to be more manageable based on the other things they can bring to the table. 
but everyone has the capacity to get through this. Such a good point. And by the way, I, they got to rebrand social distancing because it's not actually socially, it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing, right? Yeah. It, In fact, it's, it's like it's when very, they say like, we're all disconnected nowadays and like, or we're hyper-connected. And I would say, no, we're hyper-communicative, but we're not necessarily connecting. It's one right. thing to be in communication, texting four people at once. I mean, I've got friends, of course, I would never do this. No, I'm just kidding. But of course I do this too, where they're texting like four or five people at dinner, right? And they're checking their whatever app. I won't name apps because um, some of them are single and some of them are, are sure. just on Instagram. But, but it's, it's it, you know, that's not, that's not connecting, that's communicating. And there's a fundamental difference there. So how can the effect of technology, and let's just start with smartphones, how can the effect of technology be positive or negative, whether at this moment in time or in general? I don't think of the phone as a, a negative device per se. In fact, I don't even think of the phone as a phone anymore because it has so much information that's specific to me and so much richness to it in terms of what it offers in my daily life, especially now in quarantine, that as much as I'm not a, I'm not a real technophile, but it's almost like a, a separate set of brain areas. It's really linked to my neurology. This is not like a car a type device or a computer type device where you turn it on, it delivers information to you. It's customized to your own internal landscape. And so you can see that as threatening and scary, or we could just say, well, how can I interact with this thing in a way that's, that's healthier? One of the things that I'm a big proponent of for mental health is, is based on findings from my friend Samar Hattar from the National Institutes of Mental Health, published a paper in, uh, that was I think in Neuron last year showing that bright light of the sort that comes from cell phones between the hours of about 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. on whatever local schedule you're on triggers activation of a circuit in the brain which involves a structure called the habenula, H-A-B-E-N-U-L-A, that then also communicates to the pancreas. And it does two things. Bright light in the middle of the night triggers activation of this circuit and creates a kind of pro-depressive like thing, um, feelings of, of malaise, et cetera. And it, it throws off your blood sugar regulation because of the way the habenula communicates to the pancreas. Again, this is nature punishing us. So it's not just what you do, it's when you do it in the circadian cycle. I, I think that's powerful. I really like this concept too of, of when you use your phone at night. What are some other little uh, practices that you think are important for people right now? Yeah, so there, there's a tool and um, Stanford and I released this through their media site and through um, some stuff that I do, uh, I do as well. Um, there's a very simple breathing practice that triggers the calming reflex fastest. This is um, has to do with the exchange of oxygen carbon dioxide in the lungs and bloodstream, but more so it has to do with triggering activation of a subset of neurons in your brain that trigger the calming reflex. So none of us need to learn how to stress. We're all good at that from birth and we maintain our ability to stress at any time, but our ability to calm ourselves, the levers as we could think of them for calming ourselves um, come to us only through, um, through deliberate practice. It's just kind of the way it is. So if you want to calm down slowly, you could eat a big meal um, or you could take a long walk, but if you want to calm down quickly, you want to trigger activation of a specific set of neurons in the brain stem that are actually responsible for sighing. So we have neurons in the brainstem that are responsible for coughing, sighing, laughing, all of that stuff. And the sighing neurons are really interesting because they are involved in long exhales, but in particular, exhales that follow a double inhale. So we don't realize it, but subconsciously throughout the day, and very much so during sleep, we do something where we inhale twice, and then we do a long exhale. So the, um, I'll do it here, but since this is just by audio, you're going to inhale through your nose. 
So you're going to take a big deep inhale through your nose. And then at the top, you're going to inhale again through your nose. And then you exhale through your mouth, right? So you have to, um, and what that does is it immediately balances the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in the lungs and bloodstream properly. And it triggers activation of these sighing neurons, which have a direct and fast route to what we're calling the, the, the calming circuit, but really uh, there is no such thing as the calming circuit. It's the so-called parasympathetic arm of the autonomic nervous system, but that's a mouthful. Now, might you yeah. want to have a longer exhale than inhale? Yeah. So you're talking about a, a, a big draw inhale, then another short little inhale at the end, ideally both through the nose and then a long exhale through the mouth. If you repeat that three times, you will immediately restore your level of calm to where it was sort of pre-anxiety. Uh, um, now, sometimes it takes a little practice um, to get good at. The other thing that I think that everyone should do is have this period of five minutes of stillness per day. I personally am a big fan of a practice called yoga nidra, which involves just lying down and just doing some conscious breathing without focusing so much on trying to control my thoughts or anything like that. It's really just a period of stillness, wakeful stillness. I could also think of it as deliberate disengagement. I'm not trying to fall asleep. I'm not trying to meditate. I'm just deliberately disengaging from any planning and doing except breathing. And the reason I think it's good to kind of keep some level of focus on something like breathing is that it's very hard to turn our thoughts off. You know, you can't really control your mind with your mind. You can't say, okay, I'm going to stop thinking about that. But you can think about something else. You can introduce other things that kind of swamp other thoughts. So I think everyone should have a five-minute period of stillness each day while they're awake. I think everybody should have a breathing tool like the one we just described. I think everyone should really be working to optimize their sleep. And I know there's a lot of kind of anxiety around sleep because now everyone knows how important sleep is. And so they've got sleep-related anxiety. And one of the things that can really help with that is that five minutes of stillness practice. Learning how to slow down your nervous system is powerful. Remember, it's just like a car. You've got an accelerator and you've got a brake. But one other way you can slow down is just by coming off the accelerator. And so I think we can't will ourselves to sleep, but these other practices that we do in wakefulness can really help us access sleep more readily and improve our sleep. Well, one theme I love about this conversation is the way that you're so um, articulate describing how breathing actually can affect your brain. I think that's something people really miss in this whole equation of like, what is health? It's very rare that people talk about breathing when they do like a quick sort of mainstream culture. It's often like, well, it's your sleep, it's your nutrition, it's your exercise. That's like the summary of who you are. And breathing, I think is, is so, um, so underrated and so important. And, and I completely agree with, with you on some of these different uh, breathing techniques that you're, that you're outlining. Uh, I've, I've been doing this for quite some time now and uh, it just makes such an enormous, enormous difference. Yeah, I always say uh, breathing is really powerful. I think of it as kind of a second hands on our existence. And when we focus on our breathing, we're kind of, it's the quickest way to quote unquote, become present. You know, one of the issues with the breathwork community, and I have a lot of friends in that community, but I kind of pick at them because it's all been left to, it's been pretty loosey goosey, to be honest. You know, they're like, oh, breathe this way or just feel it, or you're going to, and the, I think it's important that people understand that there's a when I say a neural circuit, I mean, there are neurons in your brainstem that connect to this muscle in your gut, the diaphragm. And what's really cool about the diaphragm is two things. One is it's not just used to move your lungs and help you breathe, but it sends signals back to your brain about the state of your body and controls your brain state. So totally. when you slow your breathing, your brain slows down to the place you want. When you speed up, your brain speeds up. And people have somehow overlooked this, but the, the, this seem, hopefully will drive it home. 
you have muscles all over your body that were designed to do things like walk and pick up objects and whatnot. You only have one organ in your body that is skeletal muscle that was designed to be consciously moved. And that's your diaphragm. You can't move and control your heart directly. You can't move and control your spleen directly. Anyone tells you they can, you should look back away slowly. <laughs> not. But the, you know, but the, the diaphragm was, it wasn't accidentally made skeletal muscle under our conscious control. It's absolutely designed for conscious control of the brain and not just of the body. So it's a very powerful organ and we, I think we should all be practicing with it. Now, if I'm someone who's actually started to feel somewhat, I don't know what the right word is, but almost like energized or excited by this moment, what does that mean is going on in my brain? In, you mean by the fact that we're this in this pandemic and there's change and, you know, um, yeah, it's interesting. You're the first person that's really offered that. They've been brave enough to offer that because I think a lot of people are afraid uh, uh, generally and other people are afraid to offer that this is a moment of opportunity. Um, I think what that means is that uh, you value the, the beauty of uncertainty. And here's how I, I'll frame that. So when you look at people who are unskilled at something, let's say skateboarding or science or whatever, uncertainty is very high. Then as they become skilled, their certainty becomes higher. And when people achieve levels of mastery, obviously certainty is very high and skill is very high. They know they've mastered something. But right. there's a level above that that you've just um, uh, revealed uh, that you fall into this category. Um, I think people in the high-performance uh, elite uh, special forces communities fall into this category as well that they know that the fourth category, which is virtuosity, only can arrive when you invite uncertainty back in. That with uncertainty, I think in your mind someplace, I'm speculating here, but the, in your mind, you've coupled uncertainty to opportunity to perform at levels that you wouldn't otherwise. And I think it's an exciting, I mean, that's, that's fantastic because without uncertainty, we're just gonna get more of the same and and some people are would just want to be in levels of mastery. They don't want to be unskilled at anything again. But people who invite uncertainty back into their life or into their business or their relationship or whatever it is, they really are saying, "I want that higher fourth tier of existence." This is what you know. I, I don't know him well, but I know him a little. Like a guy like Laird Hamilton, right? He doesn't go out surfing, wishing for the same waves he's always had. Right. He wants right. the thing he's never seen before, so he can challenge himself. And he can't say, I want that thing because that's not uncertainty. So virtuosos crave uncertainty. And when it shows up, they think, oh, this is kind of an interesting thing. I want, this is my opportunity to really dance with something new and create something new internally or externally. I think, yeah, I think you got it because I, the framework that I've used almost from the beginning of this is to look at it as an opportunity to learn how to lead a company or, 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 you know, work closely with a team to overcome something that I've never overcome before. I mean, th this is, I mean, that's wonderful that you have that mindset. You know, I, I run my laboratory and, um, and we made a, a, a decision to meet more often during this time than we would in person to really find ways that we can move forward to implement all the sorts of things that, um, you know, we discussed during this, this last hour. And, and I think, and, but I also know that in my group, there are people who really are not anymore, but for the first couple of weeks, really focus on trying to get back to the way things were. I think when we embrace uncertainty, we discard with the discomfort that comes from, you know, not being able to control things. And we invite back in that sense of almost like lack. It's our, it's the action function of 
uncertainty allows me to, to derive some dopamine from figuring things out. Some people are also just um, like puzzles. They like problems and other people hate puzzles. They just want to watch the Netflix special. And I watch Netflix, so full disclosure. <laughs> I'm not being disparaging. But some people crave, they, they get a, a internal dopamine drip from having to figure things out. Am I too optimistic for believing that when we come out of this, there could be this sort of beautiful new age of optimism for society where all of a sudden, and an appreciation, mind you, where all of a sudden you're at that restaurant that you used to eat at twice a week again, but you're, you're so deeply appreciative of that moment of being able to eat there. Or, or the professional basketball player who, by the way, all of a sudden found himself kind of depressed as one of the best athletes in the world who's now getting to play his sport again in front of 50,000 fans or, you know, the person who lost their job, but just rediscovered a new, a new job. Like, is, is it possible that our brains will, will go this direction or am I too optimistic? I believe that is how we're going to emerge from this. And I, I think if the messaging is, look, you know, I, I, if people are just thinking, oh, you know, are we ever, when are we going to get back to normal? Well, this isn't the new normal, but the new normal isn't going to look like it was before either. We have to be, we have to embrace that. And when I say we have to embrace that, I don't mean it just from a purely psychological standpoint. I'm, you know, for all the neurochemical reasons that we've been talking about, we have to look at it as new ways of interacting with the old things. Like you said, like a deeper appreciation of the things that we had before and took them for granted, myself included, right? I mean, knowing these mechanisms doesn't make me immune from having taken things, many things for granted. Totally. I miss, I mean, I miss pieces of equipment at the gym. Totally. Like little totally. things. And, little things. you know, I've, yeah, like little things. And, and it's also given me appreciation. I was friends with one of the, t the guys that fixes the equipment at the gym. I used to like to, he had great stories about some of the crazy people that worked out there over the last 30 years and like little things like that. When I can return to those, I'm going to have a, you know, tenfold, hundredfold uh, more dopamine serotonin response to those interactions. And I think that ultimately we're, we will emerge from this, whether or not we emerge from it stronger is going to depend on how many people take that, take on that mindset. We have to stay focused on not just the resilience piece to get through it, but on what we're gaining. I think the kids that are moving through this and realizing, wow, they actually missed face-to-face -face communications. They they've missed face-to-face -face interactions that weren't just that aren't just electronic. I think, um, and that you know, I was talking to this kid, the one that I gave the whoop, and I said, "How are you doing?" And he's like, "This sucks. I hate this." And I said, "Well, what are you going to do after this?" And he said, "Well, I think from now on, I'm going to have like." a third of my day where I'm not with my phone, a third where I'm just in my phone, and then like a third where I'm um, kind of mixed on my phone and with people. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty cool. That, that's an okay, evolved there mind. You go. Right there. Yeah, there you go. You know, so as long as we have kids like him out there, we're going to be okay. I think um, the next generation, I mean, look, they're in a heightened state of neuroplasticity. We all are right now, but the kids are in a heightened state of plasticity. They are building in such resilience from this. They're going to come out of this with the capacity to sit in a house for a month or more without engaging in a lot of their normal pleasures. And that's what they're going to bring to their adult jobs, their college experiences there. So I, I think we are going to grow from this and I, I would like to see a little bit more mental toughness, but I'd also want to wrap into mental toughness. I'd like to, and you know, and embracing uncertainty, I'd also like to see a bit more of just gratitude for the things we've still got, right? If you're breathing, you're, alive, you're listening to this, 
you're winning. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you nailed it, and and it's an interesting point you just made about are, are we potentially about to witness a generation that's more resilient than than other generations because of this moment in time? Like the how old would you say the people are that are being most molded by this? I would say based on the rules of neuroplasticity and what I know about brain development, I would say probably from about ten to yeah, ten to eighteen. You know that generation. I mean, the, their boom times are great, but they're not great for building out strong next generations. We know that they're just not. And people say, "Well, there's already enough um, discomfort and trauma built into most life experiences at home." Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of people suffering. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's not a uh, you know a trivial consequence of, you know, the post-World War II era, there was this tremendous growth in science and technology. I mean, they're realizing they have a muscle that they can flex if they want to, and they're kind of being forced to flex it. It's fascinating. Well, uh, this has been such a pleasure getting to talk to you about this, and uh, you're, you're really an inspiration, and I hope a lot of people uh, get as much out of this as I did, because I think there's a lot of good lessons here. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work and, and your research? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the kind comments. I really enjoyed the conversation and um, learned a lot from you as well. So um, I teach or I offer little neuroscience uh, tidbits and classes for free, of course, on uh, Instagram. So that's Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. Um, I put out some actionable stuff and some principles of neuroscience. You could um, find out more there. My lab is hubermanlab.com, which is uh, easy to find. Also at Stanford, you can just Google my last name and Stanford and some things come up. And um, I try and be good about replying to uh, direct messages and things of that sort. But if people have any questions about specific papers that I've referenced or studies, um, you can find me easily uh, through my Stanford contact, which is all available online. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Andrew, for coming on the podcast. This has been a real pleasure. We're going to include all of this in the show notes and best to you and your family during this uh, unusual time. Thank you. You as well. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you to Dr. Andrew Huberman for coming on the podcast. I know we're going to have to have him come back and talk more about this because uh, the brain is and he requires a lot more than an hour. We are doing a lot more Whoop Q&A. So we just published a Whoop Q&A piece on The Locker. So that's whoop.com slash locker. And you can check that out. You can always reach out to us on social media. I am at Will Ahmed. Whoop is at Whoop, W-H-O-O-P, or by emailing thelocker at whoop.com. I'm going to answer a couple Whoop questions here. How much of a jump in respiratory rate from night to night is concerning? So, of course, this is in reference to the research that we're doing around elevated respiratory rates before symptoms of COVID-19. For those of you who wear WHOOP, you notice that your respiratory rate almost never changes. Turns out that's a good thing. I've looked at my respiratory rate. It's about 13 breaths per minute, and it's been like that for the last six months. I think once it went up to 14. The folks, the individual cases that we've looked at where an individual has had COVID-19, we've seen a pretty meaningful jump. So what is a meaningful jump? We're talking 15 to 30% higher. Again, a lot of ongoing research. This is initial data. Uh, so if you're at a, a 15, you know, 17, 18, that's where potentially 
you should be concerned. Another question, is WHOOP only intense for athletes? Would it be beneficial for a person who doesn't work out? So believe it or not, our WHOOP membership uh, now includes a ton of WHOOP members who are low on the spectrum of exercise, but very thoughtful in other ways of their life. So you know, I wouldn't say that WHOOP is just for athletes at all. In fact, we've got people that are just motivated in their daily lives. This includes doctors and health workers right now. This includes cops, firemen, you know, lawyers and executives and people who live stressful lives who want to better understand their bodies. And yes, of course, the group of people that I just said, many of them do exercise. But my point is, you don't have to exercise or be super into working out to get benefit out of WHOOP. We certainly see a lot of people focusing more on the sleep, the recovery, and even just lifestyle habits that can improve your overall physiology. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Thanks again for listening, uh, signing off now, and wishing you and your family the very best. 